Well, last week in the Gospel of Luke, we answered uh, the question, what lies at the heart of Christianity? And the answer was the cross. That if someone's definition or your definition of, of Christianity doesn't have the cross at the center, then it's not Christianity. It's something else. Uh, last week, we, we saw Jesus clearly state that he, in summarizing the Old Testament prophets, that that was what the cross, or they were pointing towards the cross. That was his point. But, but that doesn't automatically mean we understand why the cross. Okay, Jesus, you're, we get it, that, that cross, which is much prettier than the one he was on, that that's, that's what the prophets were pointing to. But why? Why the cruel Roman cross? Our answer today is hinted at in the title of our sermon, and that is, the cross lies at the center of Jesus' mission. If you haven't already, pull this out and you've got a place to take notes if you wish. You also have the Sanctity of Life statement on the back. So uh, with that, would you stand with me? Open up your Bibles to Luke 18, um, and we're going to read two stories. They're actually not parables, but two stories today, 1835 through 1910. And you can find this in your paper pew Bible, page 605. Beginning uh, chapter 18, verse 35. As he, that is Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Chapter 19, verse 1. He, that is Jesus again, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. And was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he who is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray again. Lord, we continue to pray every Sunday that your word would have the impact that you have destined it for. We know that your word does not come back void. It is the scent of life, as your apostle Paul wrote, or the scent of death. I pray that today your word would be the scent of life for all of us in this room and many who are online. We pray that you would unplug our our ears, that you would soften our hearts, remove the scales from our eyes, and help us by your grace to have faith, to follow you, Jesus, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage today really divides into three parts. 
There's three parts to Jesus' mission that we see today. The blind beggar who can see, the rich tax collector who is found, and then Jesus' mission summary in verse 10. This morning, like we have the past several weeks, past several months, we're going to follow Jesus as he journeys toward Jerusalem and the cross. Along the road, he encounters these two men that we just mentioned, that we just read about. And on the surface, they seem quite different, don't they? One's a, a poor beggar and the other one is a rich tax collector. But I think they share far more in common than we might see at first glance. Let's look for those similarities as we again walk through the passage now in detail and seek to apply it to our lives this morning. The blind beggar who can see. Last week, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to the cross and we're going to Jerusalem. It's the summary of the prophets as we've already mentioned this morning. And yet if there's any temptation to believe that Jesus strays from his mission in this, in these two little stories, I, I would beg to differ. I think this is Jesus on mission. He's coming across two people who he knew he would encounter I think it's very safe to say that since Jesus is fully God and fully man, he's not surprised that as he approaches Jericho, which if you remember is about 3,000 feet below Jerusalem, and then he's going to make the climb up into Jerusalem, that he, he's not surprised at all to know, to see a blind beggar on the roadside. Matthew's gospel records two blind beggars. Mark notes that a name of one of the beggars that who's blind is named Bartimaeus, but those beggars are noted on the other side of the city. So I think it's likely that we have a different blind beggar. Jericho is a big city, and Jericho was a very popular stop on the way up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast every year. So it would make sense that beggars would set up their little mats in strategic areas. Some uh, as you come into the city and some as you go out. It's a wonderful place when all you have to live on is someone's generosity. And this man, for how many hundreds, thousands of days, they all blend together, would put his mat out with the help of somebody, would guide him. No doubt he had a little staff or a stick and he would sit down and he would, he would say something like alms for the poor. But this day, this man would never forget. Verse 36, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Well, he told him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So the blind man who, as we, we know from, from science, probably has far more acute hearing than you and I do, he knows the sounds of the crowds. He's no doubt of an age where he has done this every year prior to the Passover. So he knows what a Passover crowd sounds like, but this is a different crowd. No doubt it's larger because Jesus has had an entourage traveling with him for some time now. And maybe it's just that, or maybe it's the, the murmuring among the other people who are there with him, waiting to get a glimpse of Jesus. We don't know, but he, he with his ears, clearly identifies something's going on. He asks, and the crowds tell him a partial truth. It's Jesus from the town of Nazareth. Now, there's a lot more to Jesus. We know that. But that's where they begin. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is passing by. And then the man cries out the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is the first time in Luke's gospel anyone addresses Jesus as the son of God, and the exception being the genealogy at the beginning. So it's noteworthy. It's the first and only time that somebody calls Jesus the son of David. Now, that's an expression which we could shorten into 
the anointed or the Messiah. What's less obvious to us is all of the scriptures that point towards the anointed one that was to come, the Messiah. The, the anointed one, the process of anointing, let me back up, was common. If you were going to be a king of Israel, you'd be anointed with oil. Probably on your forehead, it would drip down onto your beard, and it was a sign you were being set apart for this ministry. But Jesus isn't any king. He's the king, and that's why he is called the anointed, or the Messiah, or in Hebrew, Yeshua HaMashiach. It's similar to last week we noticed Jesus often calls himself the title that Daniel gave him a thousand years plus before, the son of, the son of, uh, the son of man. Now, there have been millions of billions of men who are sons of other men, but Jesus is the son of man, the greatest son of any man. And therefore, also here, he is the anointed one. Later to be called in Revelation, the king of kings and lord of lords. So it's interesting, isn't it? This blind beggar sees Jesus far more truly than the crowds do. He has eyes of faith that understand who Jesus is, and that is why he cries out, have mercy on me. Now, the crowds were having none of this. Quiet down, you. They've already stepped in front of the blind man so that Jesus cannot physically see him. That's rude. But now they're literally telling him to shut his mouth. Be quiet. But he'll have none of it. He knows this is his one chance and so while it's repeated a second time, I, I think it's safe to say he shouts this out many times. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And to the annoyance of the crowds, he continues to herald and pipe up like a loud trumpet player. Have mercy on me. Mercy, as R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite dead theologians, reminded me recently, cannot be demanded. By definition, mercy is, quote, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm, end quote. So mercy must be freely given. It's not obligatory. Otherwise, it's indebtedness. Otherwise, it's, it's compulsion. It has to be freely given. And the recipient must be undeserving of it. There's an Old Testament example I want to share with us that is foundational in our belief of God's mercy. And it's the Exodus. You remember with me, the, the, the Jews led by Moses crossed through the Red Sea. There's the incredible miracle that both saves them and destroys the enemy, Pharaoh's army. <clears throat> and then Moses is called up onto the mount. And he's, he's out of sight for them. They can't see him. He's up there days and weeks. And what do they do? They look at Aaron and they say, make us an idol. And so he says, okay. Aaron being a sinner just like the rest of the people, he says, give me all your gold. So he gathers their gold and they craft this ridiculous golden calf. They've exchanged the God who can part the seas, who can appear to them in a pillar of fire and a cloud for a golden calf. Now Moses, because God tells him on the mountain, is aware of this, and Moses knows that God is, is rightfully able to wipe every one of them out for their sin against him. And so Moses intercedes on their behalf. And here comes the passage. 
that I want us to, to just remember. Exodus 33, 19. And he, that is the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he does. God does not wipe out all of the people of Israel who have sinned against him and deserve death. He has mercy. He shows grace to those deserving death. God can show mercy and will to whom he chooses. All of us deserve a rebel's punishment, which is death. But God, when he deems it right, can and will show mercy. And so the blind beggar here understands his proper state before God, doesn't he? He knows he's a sinner. He knows he has no way or rights to demand that God, that Jesus heal him. So he cries out for mercy. And Jesus stops. Verse 40. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, gave praise to God. Wow, Jesus stops. If the apostles are still the closest to him, it's probably they who he turns to and says, go find him. Can't see him physically. And so they, where's, where's the blind man? Where is he? Where's the beggar? They find him, they pull him up. They guide him to Jesus. And he, he comes willingly. He could have said, no, 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 no. But he does, he comes willingly. And then he brings his request before Jesus. He's bold. He understands the character of Jesus in a way that all those crowds just seem to have no idea. The general consensus in the Hebrew culture of this time is that they believed that there, were, there was no way to cure someone of leprosy unless God himself did it. And so two chapters ago in chapter 17, we read about the 10 lepers that were cured. And only the Samaritan comes back to praise Jesus and is therefore saved. So too, by the way, blindness. It was believed largely that you could not cure blindness by any other means except by God's incredible mercy. Only God could cure blindness. Now, it may be that this man believed this, but what's more importantly is what and who he believed Jesus to be. And I wonder if he, was, he heard about Jesus teaching back in Nazareth. Or maybe he knew the, the prophet Isaiah and the scrolls of Isaiah. Wouldn't surprise me if this man was faithful to attend synagogue and heard the passages that Jesus quoted back in Luke chapter four, which won't come up for us. But are those passages where it says, this is why Jesus has come. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. I wonder I think it's plausible this man knew those verses and therefore knew that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. And so he asks boldly and he receives a yes to his prayer request. Pretty amazing, isn't it? This man in, in the truest spiritual sense had far more sight than anyone else did in that crowd. Although they, they glorified, they, they praised God, but they did not praise Jesus, it says. But notice how he addressed him, Lord capital L, God, let me recover my sight. And he is gifted 
the sight, and he shows the fruit of repentance in following Jesus. Story number one. Story number two, the rich tax collector who was found. Jesus has already entered Jericho and he's moving through Jericho. And verse two of chapter 19 says, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And I am not sorry that many of you are singing that song in your head. Zacchaeus was a... And if you're not, now you are. You're welcome. I'm singing it too. Great little song though, isn't it? It totally captures the story. So Jesus is coming through. The crowds are getting bigger. Jericho, like I said, is a fairly large city. Coming through, people are building. The noise is there. And, and Zacchaeus is not tall by human standards. And he, he, he's smart, though. He's savvy. And he doesn't seem to have a lot of shame. So he hikes up his robes, climbs up a, a tree, and is on the lookout for Jesus. Notice the description of him. He is, <clears throat> what does it say here? The chief tax collector. So, yeah, he was loaded. He's the the manager, if you will, the the CEO of all the other tax collectors in the region. And remember what a tax collector is. It was a Jew who was hired by the Romans, the uh, the occupying evil empire that the Jews hated so much, to collect taxes from his fellow people. This guy was the lowest of the low in the social stature because of the way he lived his life. And no doubt, like many of his tax collectors, he added extra fees on top. He'd do his collections and maybe even would take them from his fellow tax collectors. We don't know the details, but it is clear he is a chief tax collector and he is loaded. And he wants to get a vision or view of Jesus. I wonder if his heart skipped a beat when Jesus stopped, looked right up at him and called him by name. Again, Jesus wasn't surprised. Jesus knew Zacchaeus was going to be there. Notice what he says, verse five. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, not just Jesus himself, but his his apostles and his disciples. No doubt, Zacchaeus had quite a spread. He could put him up, no problem. So, notice Zacchaeus' actions. He hurried and came down and then received Jesus joyfully. Those are intentional words, friends. It wasn't begrudgingly. He wasn't embarrassed. He hurried down. There was no sense of shame or or pride. He was joyful to receive Jesus into his home and as we will soon see, into his heart. But the crowds. Now notice I said there are some similarities between both the stories. Both take place around Jericho. Both are, of course, focused on Jesus doing a miracle. One was of healing the blind, and one here would be of saving the lost man. And also notice the role of the crowds. The crowds to the the blind beggar tried to get him to shut up. Be quiet, you fool, be quiet. It's just Jesus of Nazareth. Be quiet. And he didn't listen. And here, Notice what the crowds are saying. And by the way, they're grumbling. This is out loud. This is what we used to call (laughs) an Irish whisper. Now, I'm not trying to pick on my old grandma. I love her dearly. But she developed that as she got older. Somebody would walk by and she would say loud enough for everybody to hear, oh, she looks terrible. 
Grandma, stop. So there's a Jewish whisper here, and it's clear. I mean, somebody heard it because they told Luke about it. He's going to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. He's going to have supper. He's going to stay overnight in that unclean house of a filthy, betraying tax collector. That's scandalous. Jesus is not approved of by the church-going crowd. It shouldn't be lost on us. Verse 8, no doubt Zacchaeus heard some of this. No doubt he had heard some of these whisperings about him his whole life. As he walked by and people would murmur, curse him. So what does he do? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, notice, not master. That's what the, that's what the ten lepers said. Master, rabbi. No, no, no. Lord, God, Jesus Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's alone incredible. A rich man giving away half of his goods to those who don't have. Wow. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, he has said this loud enough for Jesus to hear, of course. He has said this loud enough for the apostles and the disciples to hear, and many of the crowds, if they couldn't hear it, oh, the, uh, you know, the, the gossip train went quickly. Wow. Half of all that I have, and I will repay anyone fourfold whatever I skimmed off of them when I collected their taxes. Now, we have to be careful. There is an order to salvation. Let us not think that Zacchaeus is now saved because of his actions, but rather, friends, his actions are a sign of his salvation. There's that word joyful, joyfully received Jesus. Zacchaeus' heart was already changed. We don't know how, it's a miracle how God does it, but something about that interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus in that tree, and Zacchaeus received mercy, and the faith by which to declare welcoming Jesus in and then acting in a manner befitting his repentance, his belief, giving away half of his goods and repaying anyone whom he may have cheated. And so it's no surprise then in verse 9 that Jesus says aloud for everyone to hear, and especially the crowds, I would think, today salvation has come to this house since Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham, a son of faith. And our third section in the smallest, but the one that we can't miss this morning, is the answer to that question I asked earlier. Why the cross? We know it's at the central part of our story of redemption of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation at the end, but why the, the cross? And here, Jesus says, because the cross accomplishes his mission the Son of Man came, verse 10, to seek and to save the lost. And there is no other way except through the cross. There's no other way for you and I to be saved except through Jesus' death on the cross. His blood pays the penalty of our sin and applies to our account his mercy. But it's not given to everyone. It's given to those whom God chooses, Ephesians 2, 
and to those who respond by faith and receive the gift. After all, that's what grace is. Jesus' mission, friend, is to seek and to save the lost. That's the greatest news ever spoken on earth. We don't have to earn our way back. We don't have to be good enough or cleaned up. You can, you can be that blind beggar who's got nothing but the mat underneath his butt and dirt and scabs and all the other stuff. Jesus can save you. You could be that rich, rejected tax collector who no one else talks to. You sit in isolation in your, your little, not little, your big house. So lonely, you have everything and yet you have nothing. Jesus can save you. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we learned that only Jesus can save you. Because for the rich man to save himself is like trying to, to put a camel through the eye of a needle, as Nathan reminded us. Your only hope, friends, is Jesus. It's never been your money. It's never been your sight. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Can you see yourself in either of these? Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. It doesn't matter. Please hear me and hear Jesus. <clears throat> Your salvation has never depended upon you. It's always depended on the object of your faith. And that is Jesus. Today, if you have never done before, please cry out with the blind man, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're more like Zacchaeus, invite Jesus into your home and into your heart. Uh, as Elaine testified today, she has seen Jesus in her everyday life in a way that she hasn't in many years. Today, would you stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ and bet your life on it? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for these two true historical stories. You encountered both men. You knew that you would. And you inspired Luke to write about it. So that we might see ourselves in some sense in, in one or both of these men. And so that we might reckon and wrestle with afresh. Have we cried out, have mercy on me? Have we put our hope for salvation in your son? I pray today that by the spirit, you would bring about a softening of hearts in this room whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. And then we would respond and walk with you in ways of obedience. And may you get all the glory, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.